It's your lucky day. A good friend of yours tells you they just want a trip to the land down under as part of a movie promotion, and they get to bring a plus one. It isn't until you're on your way to the airport that your friend mentions that the free vacation comes with one small catch. Since the movie promotion was for an upcoming horror film, you'll both have to spend the night in Australia's most haunted house, the Monte Cristo homestead. That's no problem. You don't even believe in ghosts. Once you arrive at the Monte Cristo homestead, just after noon, you settle into your guest room. The giant two-story mansion seems surprisingly quite peaceful. Surrounding the main mansion is a slew of other buildings. There's the original homestead, the dairy, and there's even a gift shop. You peek into the carriage house, admiring the collection of horse-drawn carriages from a simpler but more difficult time. It's empty, almost eerily quiet. But as you walk through the room, you see something moving behind one of the carriages. The ghost of a boy, burned to a crisp, reaching out a skeletal hand for you. You take a step back and wonder if you haven't just agreed to stay in a little patch of heaven, but instead, a bit of hell on earth. Welcome to Haunted Places. I'm Greg Polson. Every Thursday, I take you to the scariest, eeriest, most haunted, real places on Earth. This week, join me on a supernatural journey to the monstrous Monte Cristo homestead and discover why, to this day, it's haunted. Listen to more episodes of Haunted Places, as well as ParCast's other podcasts, on your favorite podcast directory. We're also on Facebook and Instagram, at ParCast, on Twitter, at ParCast Network, and at ParCast.com. Many of you have asked how you can support Haunted Places. If you enjoy the show, the best way to support us is to leave a five-star review wherever you listen. For a place named after Christ, it's anything but holy. The Monte Cristo Homestead in Juni, New South Wales, Australia, has seen more than its share of horrors over its 140 years of existence. Murder, suicide, mutilation, and torture have played out around nearly every acre of the homestead. The land was named Monte Cristo, or Mount of Christ, by the land's owner, Christopher William Crawley. After failing as a farmer, Mr. Crawley jumped into the hotel business, right before the town of Junee opened a railway station, with Junee resting right in between the major cities along Australia's Great Southern Rail. Mr. Crawley's hotel became a popular place to retire for weary travelers. With a seemingly endless supply of renters always at the ready, Mr. Crawley's hotel quickly made him a very wealthy man. With a huge fortune at his disposal, Mr. Crawley was eager to show everyone in the small outback town that he was a man of great importance. 
So, in 1884, he began to build the iconic rectangular mansion that would soon become a haunted house of horrors. During the first few years of the Monte Cristo, life was comfortable for the Crowleys. But it wasn't long before paranormal activity would take up residence. And once it did, it would claim its first victim quite early. Some said it was an accident. Others claimed it was intentional. There were even a few that were certain it was a sacrifice for a rumored deal Mr. Crowley made with an advisor. An advisor not of this world. It was 1888, and Beryl had just been hired as the nanny for the Carly's baby, Ethel. She was tender at 10 months old, and cute as a button. Her cheeks were chubby, and her face was never without a smile. When Beryl saw her for the first time, she knew that they shared some sort of connection, and she would take great joy in caring for the baby. Those feelings eased Beryl's worry about accepting the job. Beryl knew the nanny that had the job before her, and she had told Beryl many unsettling stories about Ethel's parents, Mr. and Mrs. Crawley. They paid well, sure, but they were demanding, very particular, and firm believers in corporal punishment to correct staff missteps. Beryl had plenty of experience working for harsh bosses, so she felt up to the challenge. What really had Beryl unsettled about accepting the job was the house itself. Like everyone else in Junie, Beryl watched as the Monte Cristo was quickly erected on the hill. As soon as the first hole was dug for the foundation, stories started to swirl in town from the aboriginal men on the construction crew that the land on which they were working should not have been used to build such a massive house. The aboriginals said that the land was sacred and disturbing it to the degree they were would only anger the balance of nature. Once nature was angered, its vengeance was powerful and everlasting. Being a descendant of the colonizers, Beryl typically didn't believe the tall tales of the native people. But the first time she stepped foot onto the Monte Cristo homestead, she felt as if something was always dragging her down. It was enough for her to wonder if this time the aboriginal story of unbalanced nature had some weight. On Beryl's first day of caring for little Ethel, all her worries about her bosses and the land on which she worked were whisked away. Caring for Ethel was like spending time with an angel. But on Beryl's second day of work, Beryl's happiness began to wither when she started to feel an invisible presence around her all the time. At first, it felt like the presence was always watching Beryl. It didn't matter where she went in the house. She felt a pair of eyes burning a hole in her from practically every angle. Finally, after having enough of the constant surveillance, Beryl lashed out at the presence. In a fit of rage, she yelled into the air and commanded the presence to leave her alone. But the tongue lashing didn't have the effect Beryl desired. It only made things worse. 
The next morning, the presence went from observer to attacker. From the moment she walked into Ethel's room at the crack of dawn, Beryl felt like there was someone bumping her. Sometimes the force was so great it knocked objects out of her hands. After weeks of constant pokes, prods, and pushes by the presence, Beryl hatched a desperate plan to rid herself of the presence for good. While accompanying the Crawleys to a midweek church service, Beryl borrowed a crucifix and a bit of holy water from the chapel. Back at the house, after Ethel was fast asleep, Beryl held the cross in one hand and flicked the holy water all around her. She repeated a prayer over and over, then demanded in the name of her Lord that whatever spirit had it in for her vanquish itself from her forever. For a handful of days after that, the assaults relented. But it was only because the spirit was building up energy to launch a deadly counterattack. On a busy Sunday morning, hours before the family's weekly church service, Beryl left Ethel's second-floor nursery with Ethel in her arms, and she began to feel the peering presence all around her once again. In a rush to get Ethel to her parents, who were already in the carriage, Beryl tried to ignore the presence as she walked down the hallway toward the staircase. As they went, Ethel began to get unusually fussy. When the pair reached the stairs, Beryl stopped as she tried to adjust a ribbon on Ethel's dress that had become undone. Just then, as Beryl finished tying the knot, Ethel was suddenly lifted out of her arms and into the air. Ethel's tiny body floated up with such force that even the ribbon in between Beryl's fingertips was plucked away from her grip. Beryl's heart stopped as she watched in horror at the baby floating above her head. Beryl wanted to reach out and grab Ethel, but her body was frozen in all-encompassing fear. She could do nothing but watch with horror as Ethel dropped from midair and onto the stairs. As Ethel rolled down the stairs, her tiny limbs twisted and turned like a corkscrew was controlling them. When Ethel's body finally came to a stop on the first floor, Beryl emitted a soul-shattering scream. The sound was so loud that even the horses outside got spooked. Soon, the entire household rushed to the staircase, and when the crowd gathered, they found Beryl with a motionless Ethel in her arms, repeating to everyone that the presence did it. Ethel Crawley, aged 10 months, is buried at the Junie Cemetery. You can visit her headstone if you so wish. The nanny who oversaw her death was sent away to an institution after the incident. It's been widely reported that the nanny swore until the day she died that Ethel's death was caused by an otherworldly entity which lived in the house. If you ever find yourself in the Monte Cristo mansion, maybe you'll experience what nearly hundreds of tourists, visitors, and residents have. A shove 
pulls or grab by an entity that can't be seen by the naked eye. If you do experience such an invasion of your personal space, a fair bit of warning. It'll probably be best not to talk back. Now for a favorite of ours here at Parcast. Now, let's get back to the story. The year was 1905, and teenager Inala was being forced to work as a maid at the Monte Cristo homestead. Inala was Aboriginal, and when she was told to do something by the colonizers, she had to do it. That sort of subservience eventually led to late-night calls to the private quarters of Mr. Crawley. Those visits gave birth to a growing problem for Inala. She was pregnant. And if she revealed who the father was, she'd be facing huge problems. Being a girl in her situation came with a lot of anxiety. Those anxieties were starting to become overwhelming. She started to have visions of having her newborn ripped away from her. It didn't matter where she went around the estate, the dairy, the stable, the grand ballroom, even in the servants' living quarters, she could never escape the visceral visions of a horrible future. To make matters worse, every time she got near the mansion stairwell, she felt as if a disembodied force was attempting to physically pull her baby out of her womb. The pulls and tugs made Inala writhe in pain, and the decline of productivity would earn the Tina lashing from the iron rod of Mrs. Crawley. But the physical pain Inala suffered was nothing compared to the visions. Both while awake and asleep, her visions of uniformed men ripping away her newborn became more and more realistic. Given Inala's heritage, she often wondered if the intensity of her oracle-like ability came from the earth beneath her. In the slivers of time Inala had clarity of mind, she hatched a plan to escape the fate that was on its way to meet her. There was only one way to keep her and her child together forever. That night, Inala climbed atop the green wrought iron fence around the Monte Cristo mansion's second-story balcony. She balanced herself and outstretched her arms as if she was being crucified. She closed her eyes. A soft gust of wind caressed her face. And she tipped herself over the edge of the fence toward the ground. She was dead upon impact. Blood seeped out around Inala's broken body on the concrete steps before the mansion's front doors. Now, no one will ever be able to separate her baby from her. The children ripped away from their Aboriginal mothers during the early 20th century are known today as Australia's Stolen Generations. It's a permanent stain on the country's history, like the blood stain that remains to this day on the front steps of the Monte Cristo from the pregnant maid that jumped to her death. Maybe the location of her desperate action was intentional, as nearly everyone who crosses the front steps today reports a feeling of great sadness overtaking them. 
The dark sadness could also be the reason why many overnight guests claim not being able to get a restful night's sleep. Many bed and breakfasters have recounted experiences of terrifyingly realistic nightmares of a very personal nature. So if you ever brave an overnight stay in the mansion, be sure to pack a sleep aid and think happy thoughts. It's mid-afternoon in Juni. Oliver, age 12, and his group of friends have just wrapped up a game of cricket. Oliver's side lost, and he's anxious to reclaim some pride. The winning team tells him if he goes up to the abandoned Monte Cristo homestead and enters the dairy, they'd all hail him as the bravest boy in town. Ever since the last remaining Crawley family members moved out of the mansion a few years ago, in 1948, rumors have swirled about a monster living inside the brick building behind the mansion. Many people around Juni have said that if you get close enough to the homestead, you can hear someone or something wailing, roaring, or howling from the inside of the small brick building. Anxious to prove his manhood, Oliver accepts the challenge and begins to ride his bike toward the homestead. The other boys follow, but at a distance. When Oliver reaches the Monte Cristo homestead, the sun is hanging low over the horizon. He marches up to the hill as his friends watch from the edge of the property. As Oliver gets to the mansion, he doesn't hear anything. He breathes a sigh of relief. He eyes the dairy. It's a small brick building that resembles a very tiny cottage. Oliver continues to march toward it and stops when he reaches his destination. He leans in an ear toward the building with the expectation of hearing the monster but there's still no sound coming from inside. Oliver tries to gander in the small square window, but a thick layer of dust blocks his view. He cautiously approaches the rotting wooden door and twists the handle. He stops, turns around, and sees some of his friends watching him from near the mansion. After all, someone must verify the deed has been accomplished. There's no way to back out now. Oliver pushes the door open. A bit of waning sunlight that's still left illuminates the interior of the building. And Oliver comes face to face with a sight that's truly monstrous. Chained to the wall is a gaunt man, about 30 years old. He has sunken eyes, tattered clothes, and scraggly, thinning hair. He's not alone. In his scrawny arms, he clutches the dried up and nearly mummified body of an old woman. The man rocks back and forth, back and forth. Oliver's throat goes dry just as quick as his pants get wet from the urine that seeps down his leg and onto the ground. The man raises his head 
locks eyes with Oliver and mutters one word. Mummy, 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 mummy. Today, a sign hangs outside of the cottage that details the story of the man who was chained to the wall. His name was Harold Steele, and he was the mentally disabled son of the woman he was discovered clutching. His mother, Mrs. Steele, was a servant at the Monte Cristo homestead. And when the last of the Crawley family moved out of the property, she and her son were allowed to live in the dairy, rent-free. It's said they were allowed to live there because it was widely rumored, but never proven, that Harold was the illegitimate son of Mr. Crawley. When Harold was a boy, he suffered a head injury from a carriage accident. The injury left him prone to violent outbursts. Not knowing what to do with a boy with special needs, the Crawleys had him chained to the wall in the dairy to keep him under control. After the police found Harold, with his dead mother in his arms, he was sent to an asylum where he died soon after arrival. Inside the dairy, to this day, there's a hole in the wall where the chain was once connected to the permanently imprisoned man. A few people have stated that if you're quiet, you can hear the soft sound of a chain being dragged along the ground. If you do hear the sound, you'll probably want to get away quickly, lest you come face to face with the spirit of poor old Harold, who may want to embrace you in his loving arms. Here's something we hope you'll enjoy. Now, back to the story. Jackie Simpson took the job of caretaker of the abandoned Monte Cristo homestead in 1961. He knew the horrific story of the property, but work was hard to get, and he readily took the job of watching over the massive estate. The gig was easy. It mostly involved trimming away the overgrowth, keeping the wild animals from taking up residence, and making sure no local thrill-seekers made their way inside any of the buildings. Jackie was just one of many in a line of caretakers, since the last living soul, Harold Steele, moved away from the property. It was decided that the dairy, where Harold Steele lived with his mother, would be converted into the caretaker's cottage. Sure, Jackie heard the occasional movement of a chain, but otherwise found staying in the cottage quite peaceful. Being in solitude gave him a lot of time to catch up on some reading. One afternoon, while he was lost in a spine-tingling thriller, a teenager pulled up in his car at the bottom of the hill near the edge of the homestead. He was a nice-looking boy with a clean, pressed polo shirt and neatly combed hair. Everything about him was normal, except the deranged look in his eyes. His gaze was locked on the dilapidated Monte Cristo mansion. He reached into the back seat to grab a long metal object. From his slow, deliberate movements, it was clear he was a young man on a mission. He almost seemed possessed. Slowly, the teen got out of the car and began talking to himself. 
It started out like a mundane conversation at first, but then it morphed into an argument with some silent, invisible companion. He only used a few words. Yes. No. I know. And I will. As he got closer to the homestead, the team became more manic and his one-way conversation intensified in volume. With each step he took, he became more and more crazed. Back at the cottage, Jackie was lying in bed, still engrossed in his book. He heard someone approaching outside. With a bit of annoyance at the unplanned caller, he got out of bed, slid his slippers on, and shuffled to the door. When he opened the door, he was met with the barrel of a rifle. It was the teenager. Except now, his shirt was unbuttoned and his hair was frazzled. Before Jackie could utter even a word, the teen pulled the trigger, and Jackie's brains splattered against the wall. The young killer set the rifle on the ground and pulled out a small utility knife from his front pocket. With a manic smile on his face, he began to etch something into the wooden door. Once his handiwork was complete, the teenager took a step back to admire his message and laughed while buckets worth of Jackie's blood pooled around his feet. If you know where to look, you can see for yourself what the teen wrote into the door. It's faint, but it's still there. All it reads in the dry, dead wood is... Die, Jack. Ha ha. The authorities were never able to decipher a motive for the cold-blooded crime. By all accounts, the killer didn't even know Jackie. All the investigators could come up with was that the murderer watched the Hitchcock film Psycho multiple times at the local movie theater before he carried out the crime. With no explanation for the crime, People in town just said that the Monte Cristo homestead somehow made the teen insane. Another prevailing theory was that the killer became possessed by an evil otherworldly entity that was theorized to have resided at the estate. With all the horrible things that had happened at the homestead over the years, Either explanation seemed to be sufficient to satisfy even the most curious of minds. Many visitors to the homestead, before and after the murder of Jackie Simpson, often claim that their minds become foggy and filled with violent thoughts. So if you ever take a stroll up the hill to the Monte Cristo homestead and find yourself dwelling on doing devilish deeds. Just breathe and keep reminding yourself that you are a good person. So good, in fact, that you wouldn't harm even a fly. Bindi is not your average nine-year-old girl. She doesn't get along with others because the other kids make fun of her for talking to herself. At least that's what they think she's doing. In reality, she's talking to the dead people she sees all around her. 
Sometimes Bindi asks them to leave her alone when they're scary. And other times, when they're kids like her, she asks them if she can help them. When you're a child with gifts like Bindi, you can be quite a handful for your parents. Her mother is never sure when Bindi might see people out of place, as her daughter calls them. So she made it a priority to keep her daughter close to her at all times. Today, on this cool winter day in July of 1980, Bindi accompanies her mom to the Monte Cristo homestead. Her mom is the top wallpaper salesperson in all of New South Wales. And the current owners of the estate, who are painstakingly trying to restore the weathered mansion to its former glory, are looking to make some improvements to the interior. While Bindi's mom and the home's owner head to the kitchen, Bindi begins to wander. She's fascinated with the odd antiques that surround her. Soon, Bindi finds herself at the base of a staircase that leads up to the second level. An ever-curious child, Bindi cautiously places her cartoon character shoe on the first step. She continues to climb, but with every step, she feels her chest tightening. By the time she's four steps up, she begins to gasp for air. She grabs her neck and struggles to fill her lungs. As she does, she looks to the top of the stairs and sees a specter manifest before her. The ghost is dressed in all black from head to toe and holds an iron rod in her hands. Mrs. Crawley. A wry smile forms on Mrs. Crawley's face, and the pressure in Bindi's chest suddenly releases. Now that she can breathe, she emits an ear-piercing shriek. The fear rushing through her small body is so powerful that it causes her to black out. When Bindi awakes, she's at the bottom of the staircase, her mother looking down at her with tears in her eyes. In 1963, the Monte Cristo homestead was purchased by new owners that still own it today. Since then, they've stated many times, in print and elsewhere, that the mansion's staircase causes a great deal of distress for many children. No one is quite sure why, but the current Monte Cristo homestead owners say that any time children begin to climb up the stairs to the second level, they're struck with fits of anger or paralyzing fear. It's even been noted that on occasion, some kids will suffer from sudden asthma attacks. One thing that is known is that the ghost of Mrs. Crawley tends to stay exclusively on the upper level of the mansion, where she spent a great majority of her time until her death in 1933. Given the horrid history of the homestead, it's probably not the best place to bring along a child. But if you do, keep them close by your side, especially if you decide to explore the upper level. Shaz is an avid ghost hunter. While she hasn't had much luck capturing any solid evidence of the supernatural yet, 
She hopes that by venturing out of Melbourne and to Australia's most haunted house in Junee, maybe now is her time. So far, 2018 has been pretty good to her. She's managed to gain a whole lot of new followers on social media, from people that want to live vicariously through her paranormal explorations. With her hopes high and her best ghost hunting equipment packed, she makes the drive deep into the state of New South Wales to the Monte Cristo homestead. She arrives at the mansion and checks into her first floor guest room. When the sun sets and darkness falls, Shaz takes the guided group to her and learns every twisted tale the house has to offer. When the tour is complete, Shaz begins to explore the homestead on her own with the hopes of capturing one or many EVPs. Excited, she decides to start her search in the carriage house. As she opens the door and enters, she feels a tug on the back of her shirt. A chill runs down her spine. Shaz cautiously turns around and discovers that a bit of thread from her shirt is caught on a jagged piece of wood. She breathes a sigh of relief and unhooks herself. Shaz begins to walk around the inside of the building and digs out a small voice recorder from her pocket. Once she turns it on, she tries to think back to the story she heard on the tour. Before it was a carriage house, the building was a horse stable for Mrs. Crawley's prized steeds. One of the workers who cared for the horses was a young boy named Morris. Morris slept in the stable. One day, after being too ill to get out of bed, Mr. Crawley lit his bed on fire, hoping it would motivate him to get out of bed. It didn't. Instead, it burned him alive. Chess hits record on her device and begins to ask questions to the air. After cycling through every question she can think of, she hits stop. With a smile on her face, she presses the playback button. She hears herself asking if anyone's there, and she's shocked. When as clear as day, she hears the labored voice of a young boy reply, Help me. She felt something tugging at her shirt again. Very cautiously, she turned around and saw a little boy. Skin charred completely black. Eyes melted out of their sockets. He was reaching out for her. Shaz turned and sprinted out of the carriage house all the way back to her car. The fun was over for her. She never went on a ghost hunt again. Hundreds of professional and aspiring ghost hunters have descended upon the Monte Cristo homestead in search of paranormal activity. The ones hoping for EVPs have been surprised and sometimes terrified to find them. Some recorded voices beg for assistance, while others demand immediate exit. But there are a few voices that have more cryptic messages from beyond the grave. Search for yourself 
and see if you can decipher what messages the spirits of the Monte Cristo homestead have in store for you. Thanks for listening to Haunted Places. A new episode comes out every Thursday. Listen to all of ParCast's podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, or your favorite podcast directory. Many of you have asked how to help the show. And if you enjoy Haunted Places, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you listen. We'll see you next week. Haunted Places was created by Max Cutler. It's a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It's produced by Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Ron Shapiro. With production assistance by Paul Mahler, Maggie Admire, and Carly Madden. Haunted Places is written by Sammy Sarzoza. I'm Greg Polson. <laughs>